Our text is in uh, Ezra chapter 6 this afternoon. God, I don't know if you realize this about him, he's playing a long game. He's in it for the long haul. He is taking his time. So the Bible, from beginning to end, it's a, it's a story of redemption and it's, it's creation, it's fall, it's redemption, and it's glorification. Creation and fall just takes three chapters, and that's out of the way. And then redemption begins and has been going on and is continually going on. And you and I live somewhere after Acts chapter 28 in this church era. And when you get to the book of Revelation, at the tail end of it, you start reading about the glorification, the final end. It's like, that's all future, and it's kind of called the end, but it's not really the end. It's actually the beginning of eternity. But my point is this. With the Lord, it seems like a thousand years is like a day. It's slow. The work of redemption is a slow long-term project. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you can relate in your life personally. Now, I just went the span of all of human history and redemptive history, and you and I are just a dot, a speck, somewhere in that grand plan of God. And yet, even in our lives, you have to come to terms with this reality. The work of redemption in my life is slow. We are called as disciples to be in it for the long haul. In fact, one of the primary evidences of God's grace being at work in us is our ability by the Spirit to endure because it's slow. It's Long. Now, granted, the Christian life is filled with wonderful events of God's Spirit moving. The surprising, the immediate, the uh, suddenly moments where God moves. And those are wonderful moments and we pray for them and we love them and we enjoy them. But we also know there is a challenge to the Christian life in the sense that it is a long game. It's slow. It takes a long time. In that comes a variety of temptations, a, a variety of things that we can stumble in. We grow weary. We lose pace. We drift off track. We forget. We get distracted. We lose our footing. Some of the challenges that happen as we are in it for the long haul. But it is that. It's like a marathon. The Christian life is more like a marathon. But with that, it poses some of those challenges. And because the journey is filled with distractions, because the journey is filled with setbacks and delays and enemies from without and enemies from within, even the waywardness of our own hearts often makes the endurance of the journey very difficult. One of the key graces of God is that he keeps us, that he supplies what we need to stay on track, to stay in the faith, to stay in the race. 
our study in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah together, it's about how the people of God, over a long period of time, have lost their way. How they have, they've really lost the faith. They've, they've screwed up. They've abandoned God. They forsook God. And they had drifted so far away, and things got so bad. They were 70 years in exile. So it would be like today we would say, we can't even see a visible church. Where is the visible people of God? They're scattered. They're in exile. They're not gathered. They're not meeting. They're in a foreign land. Some are here. Some are there. It was like the, the visible people of God had somehow vanished. In the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, what we see is God regathering, bringing them back, reassembling And what we're seeing is a story of the people of God getting back on spiritual track. Getting their spiritual wits about them. Getting things right that they had gotten wrong so many times before. And now they're laying the foundations and getting things ready to get back on track with being the people of God. Getting their spiritual lives back in order. Our chapter, chapter 6, what we're going to read together and look at and and study a bit, shows us some ways that God is equipping them and setting them up to endure the long haul. Here's some things we can put in place. Here's a plan for you and for me to endure for the long haul. This is a message for the people in the room, if it happens to be you who need a plan to stay on course with Jesus. That's what we're going to look at today. God provides what we need to endure. That's, that's the message. Going to remember a sentence? There it is. God provides what we need to endure. And we're going to break it down with three things in this chapter that God provides that equips and enables God's people to endure. Confirmation, completion, and celebration are the three points that we're going to look at. We've got a lot of text to read, so we'll just take the sections of text that apply to that point, and we'll be reading parts of the chapter at each point. So let's begin with Ezra chapter 6, and we'll read the first 12 verses together. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ecbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth breadth, 60, 60 cubits, With three layers of great stones and one layer of timber, let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now therefore, Tadani, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethbar, Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away 
Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep, for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree Let it be done with all diligence. First thing that God provides for his people is a confirmation. A confirmation of who they are, where they are, what they're doing. We are entering into the story about 20 years after they arrived in Jerusalem. So we've got exiles, a massive group of people that were in exile, and they're making their long journey back. They arrive in the Jerusalem area, And now we're looking at about 20 years later. When they arrived, they were excited, excited about the prospect, excited to start rebuilding. They had been commissioned by the king of Cyrus, rebuild the temple, rebuild Jerusalem, resettle the land there. But soon, as we've been studying through the story, opposition arose. Neighbors who opposed the work. When they were dismayed by the opposition around them, they realized they had another opposition within themselves, in their own hearts, cravings, desires to pursue their own pleasures. Well, we're not going to focus on this. We might as well focus on our own lives. Go get your education, get a career, get established, build your house, remodel your house, buy a second house. On and on it went. And they lost focus on the work that God had called them to and began to just focus on their own lives, building up their own lives. Now they're back at work. Now they're back at work and they're rebuilding. And this new governor steps in and questions the work. Who are you and what are you doing? And they answer, this is who we are and this is what we're doing. I had that in chapter 5. And so this governor sends word back to the king. says, there's people here rebuilding a temple. And they say the king ordered it. And these are the people. This is what they're doing. And I'm sending to find out, is it true? Is it true? The King Darius, they do a search and they find it. They find the record. And word gets back. Yes, in fact, it's true. This is precisely what Cyrus dec- declared, decreed. And so, leave them alone. Let them build. Don't stop them. In fact, ante up. Give them the money. Give them whatever they need. I want you to supply what they need. The decree from Darius, I want you to see, is God confirming 
his decree to these people. There's a significant theme in the book of Ezra. And it is about seeing God's hand in and through the human agency, kings and governors and people. So in a sense, they're not overt miracles that are taking place in this book. What, what this author wants us to see is that while the human agencies are doing their thing, the king is making his de- declarations, governors are paying tribute and so forth, we want to see that it is the Lord who's behind it all. Chapter 1, verse 1 is a significant verse to keep in mind in understanding this book. It was the Lord who put upon the heart of King Cyrus, go and tell these people to go back and rebuild their temple and rebuild their city. So what is a decree from the king, we as readers today are supposed to understand this is a decree from the Lord. The Lord was behind this. And the question comes up again, and the question is sent back, and the answer comes again, and again it gets restated. Yes, in fact, it is true. And you and I should read it as the Lord confirming his word to his people. Were these people discouraged? Were they dismayed? Was this questioning governor causing them to stumble and stop the work? We really don't know precisely what was going on in their hearts, but we do have the sense the text does imply that they kept working. So we don't really know how they were affected by this. But I have as kind of a rule in interpreting Scripture, if the Scripture is not telling you something or emphasizing something, Don't spend too much time trying to speculate. Try and figure out what the text is trying to tell you. That's a better rule to follow when you're reading your Bible. Because we always read our Bible and we have questions. Well, what about this and what about that? No, we can speculate, we can think about it, we can take a guess. But God wrote what he wrote for a reason. And he's not telling us this in the context of opposition. What he is emphasizing, what is being emphasized in the text is that God moves in a way to confirm to his people about who they are and what they're doing. Tell me honestly, have you ever found yourself questioning? So why are we doing this? Uh, community group again? It was, is it, has it been a whole, whole, has it been two weeks? Is it, is it that time? Why are we doing this again? Oh, I need to come early to help set up the sound and move speakers and get the... Uh, why are we doing this again? Every week we gather, we sing, oh, we care for one another, we stay in touch with each other, we find out how... Each other, why are we... Do you, ever, do you ever stop and just feel like, why, why are we doing this? One of the ways that God meets us so that we can endure in those moments when we begin to question, we're really on the right track? Is this really who we are? Is this really where we're supposed to be? And the word of the, of, of the Lord, the decree from God, comes back and confirms. These are the people of God. I have told them to go and build this temple. They are my people. They are getting my community 
reestablished. One thing that's meant to stabilize our hearts through the long haul, through the ups and downs, through the 20 years we're reading about of ups and downs and setbacks and stumbling behind and moving forward and getting things done and not getting things done, the one thing that's meant to stabilize our heart is God's word confirming, reconfirming, saying it again, reminding us this is who you are. This is why we're doing this. I have called you. I've made you. I'm moving you to build my kingdom. I'm gathering you together for this purpose. I have a purpose. I have something to say. We know theoretically, as Christians, what God says will come to pass. If God says it, we know we're supposed to believe that. If God's word said it, I know it will come to pass. And yet, every one of us faces the difficulty of waking up one day and saying, well, God's word says such and such, and today I'm experiencing not such and such. That is not my present experience. The life of faith that we are called to live as disciples of Christ is to hold on with confidence, to have such assurance in our hearts that what God has decreed will, in fact, come to pass. Regardless if I wake up on Tuesday and what God has decreed is is invisible to me at this present time, I know that in time, his word will, in fact, be fulfilled. These people are building this temple and called into question. And what helped them? God's word confirming. You're on the right track. You're doing the right thing. But in the 20 some years of pastoring, I, I can recall several conversations where people come and they're, they're a bit confused, a bit disillusioned. Things don't seem to be going right. I feel like I'm doing something wrong. I'm not sure I'm in the right place because this doesn't all feel that right. And they begin to explain this and this and this. And then I'm listening and my, my observation and my assessment is, You sound to me like you're doing exactly the right thing, like everything is right. You're honoring the Lord. You're following the Lord. You're you're trusting the Lord. Now, is this moment difficult in your life? Is there opposition? Is there resistance? Is there difficulty? Well, that certainly, certainly may be. But you know what that's like, how quickly when circumstances go right, how suspicious we get of our lives and thinking, I must be doing something wrong. And what a blessing to have God's word come and confirm and speak. Now, certainly we could be doing something wrong. Certainly we could be disobeying. But these people were building, and God confirms, you're exactly where I want you to be. Friends, therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. 
you, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. The old has passed away, the new has come. I woke up this morning and I feel old. Wait, Lord, I, I feel old. I don't just feel old because I'm old. I, I feel old like sometimes I feel like my old self old, that kind of old. That old that was supposed to be passed away, I feel it. And so I wonder, who am I? Am I in the right place? Am I doing the right thing? And then the decree of God comes to help confirm. Oh, if you are in Christ, you are in fact a new creation. I have in fact begun a good work in you. I will in fact carry it on to completion. I have decreed it. The king has decreed it. It's true it will come to pass. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, well, wait a minute. I feel all kinds of condemnation. Ah, but the decree of the Lord says, now I have dealt with your condemnation. So hear the word of the king and believe what is being said. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, what shall we say to these things? If, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am just pulling out phrases of God's decree that God uses in our lives to help us endure. In times when someone or maybe our own hearts call into question, who am I? Why are we here? Why are we doing this? And the decree from the Lord comes and settles our hearts. Folks, you can keep your spiritual life in order. You can position yourself well to endure for the long haul by keeping the degrees of God before your heart. Your Bible is there as often as you need it. And by the way, we need it every day. It's right there. The words of God, the decrees of God, the things that he has stated as the king of kings over your life, over my life, over our gathering, he has said them. And they're there for us to go back to and confirm and remind ourselves and live in the good of. That's the confirmation that the Lord provides to help us stay on track, stay in for the long haul. Second point, completion. Let's go back to our text and read verses 13 through 18. Then according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tadani the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Idu. They finished 
their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated and dedicated of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set their priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. They finished. They finished the job. They built the temple. It's done. Completed. And they celebrate. They, they, they dedicate it. Hearing the decrees had its effect. That's what the text is, is wanting to draw our attention to. The decrees from the king, which came from the Lord, and the prophets that the Lord sent, Haggai and Zechariah, were there. And between the word of the Lord coming via the king, via the prophets, it all had its intended effect on the people. They worked with joy, they worked with diligence, and they accomplished the task. And the place was built. They finished a task, not the task. They finished the temple. But we're going to study through the book of Nehemiah as well. And we're going to find out there's all kinds of building that needs to take place. This is just like phase one. They just got stage one of the whole project done. They finished a task. But there were still many tasks that were still unfinished. It was just one task that was completed. But it was by far the most important task that needed to be completed. But one thing was done, but many things were undone. One thing was finished, but most everything else was unfinished. Something was complete, but the rest was incomplete. It's kind of the nature of the book of Ezra. And isn't it true also it is the nature of our Christian lives? I don't know if it's dawned on you yet. I am unfinished. And you are unfinished. And we together, this local congregation, is unfinished, incomplete. God's, as we say, God's not done with me yet. He started something. He's continuing to work in my life. Our sanctification is still in process. What God is doing in your life, it's in process. You're, you're, you're not done yet. Something is finished, but you're not finished. Something is finished. I'm not finished. We're not finished yet. But here we're looking in, and the temple was now finished. When we take this theme of the temple, and this has come up several times in our teaching, and we trace it forward. So they're building this building on the site where Solomon had built the temple prior to this which was torn down they're reconstructing it and the temple is the place where God and man can come together 
and be united, can meet, can be joined together, reunited, fellowship. A person can know God via the temple. No other way. You have to go to the temple because that's where God's presence was placed. So if you wanted to come to God, you had to go to the temple. Now, this particular temple, this second temple, was rebuilt then many years later and a couple decades before the time Christ appeared on the earth, Herod did a fantastic remodel of this second temple. He went all out. It was a marvelous building. It was a wonder to see. People traveled to go and see it. People marveled when they walked by it. And at one point, Jesus was there, and somebody next to Jesus tried to draw Jesus into marveling at this grand temple that Herod had built. Isn't it wonderful? And immediately Jesus responds by, in a sense, changing the subject and makes this odd statement. One of the statements that got him killed If you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. It was a confusing statement at the moment, but we know, and it's explained to us, he was talking about himself. So his friend is talking about the temple, the building. And Jesus responds to the admiration of the building by talking about himself. In other words, what we learn from this is that That's really not the temple. That's the temple that was pointing to the temple. Now the temple was the guy standing there who we know as Jesus. Jesus himself is the true temple. The true place where God and man can be united. The true place, the one place where you can go and meet God. You go to the person of Jesus the true temple, because that's where God is, and that's where we have access to God. Now, Jesus makes the statement. It shows up at his trial, and he gets sentenced to death. Now, Jesus is dying. He's hanging on a cross. He's he's nailed to a cross. And you remember the last thing that Jesus said. He said, in his last breath. So literally, his dying breath. And you realize when, when a person is crucified, they're, they're hung and suspended and, 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 and nailed. And the, amidst all the suffering, the actual cause of death is asphyxiation. They can't breathe. You can't take in a breath. That's, that's your, that's, you're fighting for your life, and what you're fighting to do is to simply inhale. You cannot give your body oxygen because of how you're suspended, the spasms in your body, the torture of it all. And, so, and of course, you can't. To lift up on your feet that are nailed to that piece of wood was excruciating. So everything was working for you to suffocate unable to breathe. He takes his last breath, his last bit of air, 
and uses it to say just a few words. It is finished. He dies. Last breath. Last thing he said. It's finished. It's finished. Something. Something was completed. One thing was completed in that moment, in his death, in his resurrection. Something was completed. There we are. So Jesus dies, says, it is finished. So we have one thing that is complete, but nothing else is complete. We're not. You're not. I'm not. The church is not. The work is not. Redemption is not. Nothing else is finished, but one thing is finished. What is difficult about enduring for the long haul? The fact that nothing is finished. <laughs> nothing is the way it's supposed to be. There's something wrong with everything and everyone, and there's always something missing, and the whole thing is just not done yet. So we're always stumbling and bumbling into things that are unfinished, and we say, why? It was decreed. It's all supposed to be done. It's all supposed to be right, and yet it's not finished yet. What has God given us to endure? The one thing that is complete. What he's done, what he's purchased, what he's given. So we go back and we say, well, I know I'm not complete. I know I'm not finished, but I know it is finished because he did what was needed to be completed first. So when they rebuilt the temple, it was one task of many, but it was the most important task. And if they didn't get that task right, no other task would make any difference. If they didn't get their worship right, if they didn't get their access to God and their being reunited to God and get their lives ordered around worshiping the Lord, nothing else would make any difference. If they just showed up and rebuilt the city with no temple, with no worship, the whole episode would have been a failure. So they built the temple first because that was most important. Jesus comes and dies because that was most important. And he says, it's finished. Now every other task is free to move forward. Every other task can take place. And every other task can take place as it ought to take place because one thing is finished. Folks, one of the ways that we strengthen our souls for the long journey is to remind ourselves of the one thing that is finished and realize that we live and breathe every moment of our lives in his kingdom because it is finished. And that gives us strength for the journey when we're disillusioned with what is unfinished. One thing is 
the most important thing is. Third point, celebration. Okay, we'll read the end of the chapter, 19 to 22. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile. And also by everyone. Everyone who had joined them and separated themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in all the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Third thing that the Lord gives us to help us endure for the long haul is a celebration. Calls us to celebrate. Something that needs to be a part of our lives is that we celebrate. In order to sustain spiritual endurance, we need to celebrate regularly. But I don't just mean any kind of celebration. Doesn't mean go throw a dinner party, have a great time, just go have a party. No, there was a particular kind of celebration, and it was the Passover. The Passover was celebrated. The most important festival that marked their beginning as a nation. You know, it's unlikely that the Passover had been celebrated in maybe a century, maybe a hundred years since this festival, this event had been celebrated. It's, it's very possible that none of the people in this group had ever celebrated the Passover. This is like getting things back in order. We're re-engaging with God. We're getting back on track. And one of the first things they do after they finish the temple is we've got to celebrate the Passover. If these people were going to endure in the long run, they needed to get back on with celebrating this vital holiday. Now, the Passover was a kind of reenactment of the 10th plague that God sent that caused them to be delivered out of their bondage in Egypt. This was a a huge nation-forming event. This is like how it all got started. They were not a nation until God delivered them out of Egypt. And that's when they became the people of God, the nation of Israel. And there's a few significant reasons why this holiday was so significant and so important to remain as a constant annual reminder to help sustain these people through the journey ahead. First, this was the one plague, this was the one event that truly set them free. If you go back into the book of Exodus and read through the 10 plagues, this was number 10. Nine of them took place before this one, and nine of them did not set them free. It appears like nine didn't work. Nine didn't do the job. We needed number 10. Number 10 was the one that did the job. Although, although this is exactly what God said. This is kind of funny because the, the nine plagues seemed to kind of make things worse. And people started accusing Moses was a real problem. God, you keep sending these plagues. Pharaoh's just getting angrier at us. Life is getting worse. 
The first three, they were suffering along with the rest of Egypt. The next ones come all the way up through number nine, and they are, they are no closer to being free. It's just as if, as if everything was just getting stirred up and boiling to the surface. But the tenth one was different. To back up, when they were enslaved in Egypt, they were oppressed by Pharaoh and his army, and they cried out to God. And this is an amazing thing when the scriptures tell us, and the Lord heard their cry. Now, God has a particular demeanor towards people who are oppressed. They were, they, their lives were hard under Pharaoh's whip. And they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard their cry, and the Lord began to act towards their deliverance. And he begins all these displays of, of God's power in, in miraculous ways. And yet after nine of them, they're still enslaved. And Pharaoh is more peeved than ever. But the Lord told Moses this. I'm going to send nine plagues, but Pharaoh's not going to let you go. Pharaoh's heart is going to get exposed. On the fourth plague, he begins to distinguish between the people of God and the people of Egypt. So all what happens through these nine plagues is God begins to bring to the surface all these realities. Who are God's people? Who are God's enemies? What is in Pharaoh's heart? Who has the real power here? Who is God? All these things are getting established over time. Again, God's not in a hurry. He's in this for the long haul. He's displaying his glory. He's displaying his power. He's exposing men's hearts. But then the tenth plague comes, and that was the one. And he told Moses before, I'm going to send a tenth plague, and this time Pharaoh's going to let you go. So that's one of the things that makes this Passover celebration, reenacting that night, that night, we said about midnight, the Lord himself is going to come through and he's going to strike down the firstborn of every household. And the only way for you to be safe is to slaughter a Passover lamb and paint some of that lamb's blood on the outside of your door. And when the Lord comes through, if he sees that blood, he will pass over your house. You will be spared. That was the plague that changed everything. That was the one that actually set them free. Second thing, the tenth plague was the one that was done by God alone. Up until that point, there was all kinds of human agency. There was Moses, Aaron speaking, the staff that the Lord had given to Moses. He's waving it, pounding it, dipping it in the water, doing all kinds of things. God is using all kinds of human agency. But when it came to the tenth plague, God said, Moses, Aaron, you're, you're all spectators here. I myself am going to come into Egypt, and I'm going to do this. So something is unique about that tenth plague. There were many displays of God's power taking place. God was using his servants to accomplish all kinds of things. But when it came time for their actual deliverance, it was God himself who stepped in to do the deed. Thirdly, finally, and what the Passover was significant for was that it was making clear 
Israel's true need. You can suppose, and rightfully so, that up until this time, everyone in Israel thought their greatest problem was Pharaoh. Certainly would seem so. They were oppressed. Their lives were miserable. They were in bondage. They were enslaved. So you say, what's your problem? What do you need? What do you want from God? We want to be delivered. We need to be out from under this oppression. But something interesting happens on that 10th plague. All of a sudden, it wasn't about that. All of a sudden, everybody had to get inside their house. Anybody and everybody. And there was only one way to escape the judgment of God that night at midnight. It was to put that blood on the outside of your door. Everyone, everyone had the same standing at this point. There was no advantage to who you were born to, what race you were, what gender you were. didn't matter what language you spoke. didn't matter what color your skin was. Nothing was relevant about you. didn't matter if you were raised in a Christian home. Even if you were homeschooled, it didn't, didn't make any bit of difference. On Passover night, get in the house, get the blood on the door. That's all that mattered. Nobody even entered the door and asked, who are you? What's your name? Where you been? Where you're from? No information about who's on the inside, just what is on the outside. And the Lord comes through. And if he saw the blood, the angel of death would pass over that household. Can I just make some application of these three points about the Passover? Friends, there's really just one event that has actually set us free. Lot of wonderful things that God has done in our lives. Lots of wonderful events, the ways God has met us and spoken to us. It's just one event that really did the deed, accomplished it all. That moment on Calvary when the Lamb of God was slaughtered and his blood was applied, that was the, that was the one event that made all the difference for all of us. The main event the most significant event. Only one mighty act of God actually set us free. The one act that truly did set us free was done by God himself. He did it. He sent his only son. The divine son took on humanity and entered into our world and bore the sins of the world. It was an act of God. Apart from responding to it, we had nothing to do with it being done. God took it upon himself. The work of saving grace is a work of God alone. We bring only our need for it and our responsive faith to it and gratefulness for it, but we had no part to play in accomplishing it. This one had to be done by God alone. No other human agency could participate in this one. And thirdly, it's the one act of God that shows that we all stand in need of it. We all need this gospel. It doesn't matter your age, skin color, race, Nothing. 
doesn't matter how good you are, how nice you are, doesn't matter how bad you are, how mean you were to your brother, it doesn't matter how much time you spend in prison, like there's, there's nothing about your resume that has any bearing on this grace of God coming into your life. It's the one thing we all need. If we took any kind of human standard, the best person in the room, the worst person in the room, no difference. No difference for what we actually need of the grace of God. Okay, let me close. Worship team, feel free to come on up. I'll wrap up here. Folks, God has provided what we need to endure. Ways that will enable his power in our lives to sustain us through the long haul of the Christian life. He gave us his decrees, his words. His words are powerful. I don't know if you've, I hope you've experienced this, where you go to God's word and you, you read what he's spoken and the words come alive in your soul because they're from the Lord and they're from his spirit and they encourage your soul. They remind you of who you are, that you're in the right place, that you're doing his will. When we forget and get distracted with other things, we can open up the book and go back over these things that God has said and refresh our faith and know what will come to pass. Secondly, he's completed the one thing that must be completed in order for anything else to be completed. In order for you to be finished, he had to finish. He had to complete what he was sent to complete, and because he did that, you and I can be finished. We can be made new. We can be transformed. We can become like him. And he's given us a celebration. For us, a sacrament, the Lord's Supper, like the Passover, something that we celebrate that reminds us of the very things that there was a true one act of God's power that actually set us free. It was an act that God alone did on our behalf. It was an act that revealed our true need. And in that, reveals his true love and willingness to give it to us and for us. Let's stand as we close. Father, it is common for us to find ourselves at times struggling with the length of the journey or the state of things at certain points along the way, things that dismay us, discourage us, things that we struggle with in ourselves, in others, in the world around us, in the church that we're a part of. Father, my, my prayer, my desire, my request, Lord, is that this chapter in a unique way would speak to our hearts and strengthen us, strengthen us for the journey, strengthen us to endure by being reminded of what you've accomplished, your words that we can rely upon, the strength that you give us through them. May be so in our hearts, Lord. Refresh and strengthen those that might be here, weary, weakened, struggling. We lift up our eyes to see the work of the Spirit that you've accomplished on our behalf. And we take heart. We take heart and we trust you. We 
we move forward in your name. 